Blog Talk Radio. This program has been made possible by Weatherby Asset Management. The views and opinions expressed are those of the guest. Weatherby Asset Management is dedicated to providing exceptional wealth management services by forming partnerships built on trust, understanding, and thoughtful advice. For more than 20 years, they've been offering objective perspective, personalized planning, and sophisticated investment management to individual investors and families, as well as pension plans, foundations, and endowments. Contact them at www.weatherby.com. Weatherby Asset Management, located in San Francisco and New York City. Well, welcome to this edition of Wealth Psychology Hour with J- Dr. Jamie Traeger Muni, located in Israel, and Emily Bouchard in Northern California. And we are focusing on steps for successful estate planning and how to bring a heart to that whole conversation, the qualitative side, and focusing specifically on step and blended families. And we're really delighted today to have a very special guest who is my co-author, uh, L. Paul Hood, Jr. He is a consultant, writer, educator, and uh, he specializes in estate planning. He primarily works with estate planning advisors, and he also sometimes works directly with clients. He's a long-time tax and estate planning attorney that has been based in Louisiana, and he frequently speaks, um, Paul and I also speak together, on uh, estate planning and especially around step family issues. And he also is a business uh, valuation specialist. Uh, Paul and I wrote a book called Estate Planning for the Blended Family through Self-Counsel Press, and we're going to share a little bit about that whole experience and hopefully give you all some great value and uh, uh, relevant information that you can start using right away. So, Paul, welcome. You Are you calling, are you with us from Missoula, Montana today? Yes, I am. I love how global we are. Yay. And, Jamie, how are you today? I'm doing great, thanks. Excited to be on the show with both of you. How are you, Emily? I'm doing great. I'm really excited about this show because this is a topic I'm totally passionate about, as you know, and uh, I love the idea of bringing our listeners really great information that can build awareness and help them take action towards um, making sure their estate planning happens. And anybody who's listening can call in 347-215-6138, or you can email listeners at sylviaglobal.com. You can also post on the Facebook page at Wealth Legacy Group or Sylvia Global and let us know your questions and what you'd like us to address. So, welcome, Jamie. Yes, I also want to say if people want to call in anonymously, you can call in and just give your location of where you're calling from. We really like to have the show be as interactive as possible so we know that we're tailoring our content to our listeners' uh, needs and wants. So, to start us off, I have a question. Blended families, I want to know um, how you guys define it and who comes from a blended family. I mean, are we talking to a small segment of our audience or are we talking to really kind of everybody? Emily? Well, I'll jump in and give the definition that we use, which is uh, situations where people are in a, a committed partnership and they are raising children that are from prior relationships. So at least one of the partners has children that they um, have parents that are also from another relationship as well. So there's complexities there. And we use a very broad term for this because it is no longer um, just second marriages because there are a lot of people that are recoupling and choosing not to remarry. And so Paul and I made a really clear distinction in our book to speak to partnerships as opposed to spouses because there's a lot of people in the population that's growing that are not remarrying but are very committed and are raising children that at least one of the partners is not involved in the birth of. And we also want to include partnerships where they might not be able to legally be married, so um, same-sex partnerships as well. And we didn't want to exclude that because those blended family situations are just as complex and have more complexities as a result. And, Paul, did you want to say something about the number of blended families out there? 
Well, I can tell you, at least from the standpoint of the United States, uh, since 2010, the blended family is the largest family segment in the country. So there are an awful lot of them out there. An awful lot. Yeah, that's a good way well, of putting it. It occurs to me, too, even if um, you're not living in that, you know, partners with kids from different parents, that it really impacts in our audience with when you're dealing with blended families and wealth, it often really impacts a larger um, um, segment because there's generations and different family branches. I was just thinking I just got off a call with a client and she was telling me about how her um, her mother came from a blended family because her mother died when she was very young and then her father subsequently married another woman who died and then a third woman. So there were children from all of that. And so it wasn't her nuclear family, but it impacted her so strongly when the inheritance happened, when the father, the grandfather finally died and left different money to to her kids versus their kids um, that it impacted who her brother married, that he was in a blended family relationship with a lovely woman, but he was so, it was handled so poorly that he said, I don't want to marry you because I'm afraid of what I might get into with my family. So, you know, right. their shit yes. holding and money, we're really talking a, a ripple effect of um, influence on what happens and how blended families are thought about and dealt with. Yeah, and I want to clarify that it's an interesting way of phrasing that, that when the grandfather finally died, this man had longevity and he ended up marrying multiple times and having children in multiple family situations that built that complexity. And so he may have lived to a really wonderful, uh, long life. And when he passed away, wow, there was a ripple effect around that and all the different people that his decision-making and his estate planning would have had for sure. And you know, yeah, I, and he I'm lost thinking, he lost partners very. You know, he lost his first wife at 28, and he lost his second wife at 40. So you know, he was a very young man to have these new these new relationships. Um, so right, yeah, like, I had, it was almost like having different families for sure. And exactly. you know, the other thing is the other the other population that we want to make sure knows that um, we're aware that they're listening is there may be people that are in their own nuclear family, loving, um, you know, uh, first only spouse, their kids, no other kids involved, and their parents um, may have divorced and um, they're dealing with remarriage at a much later age where there may be issues around, wow, what are the intentions of this new spouse? I have um, somebody I was speaking to recently where, her um, mother's estate was what the uh, was directed towards the children, and the father was supposed to, you know, live off of the interest, but the principal belonged to the children. And she passed away, and the father has remarried another woman whose intentions are not so um, benevolent, I guess you would say. She's very much uh, looking out for her own best interest and the interest of her children. And the kids are seeing how the principal is being dipped into and they're having to take legal action to see what they can do to, to take care of what they believe is rightfully theirs. And it's really important that your estate planning takes care of what your concerns are. And, Paul, you want to speak a little bit about this? Because that's one of the reasons you wanted to start running this book, right? <clears throat> Absolutely. I have my own blended family. And from my standpoint as a former practicing lawyer, the blended family situation was always the most challenging client that I had to deal with. And from, from, for me, when I went out looking for help, there was just not much out there that has been written on this subject. And so I didn't find a lot of help. I basically had to, and I decided to, write a book about it because I thought that it needed to be addressed. And Paul, when you were looking for that advice, were you looking for the advice to be very concrete, tangible, legal advice? Um, were you looking at, for it also to be sort of how do you emotionally deal 
with, um, you know, all the complexity as well. Well, I've really looked at the entire ballpark because I've written and presented a fair amount of times on a st- on the psychology of estate planning, and so that part of it, that piece of it, has always intrigued me. I don't have any formal training in it, but I certainly have done quite a bit of reading to learn uh, some things that I needed to know. And uh, because I didn't want, I mean, you know, I go back to the to the lawyer's version of the Hippocratic Oath: "Don't do any harm, do no harm." And uh, I didn't want the hard side of estate planning to basically ruin it because of the soft side issues that many advisors simply either don't address or aren't equipped to address. Mm-hmm. So sometimes, and this is so important, you know, when we're working with advisors and when we talk to our to our listeners about it and to our clients is really, first of all, understanding some, you know, finding that um, person to work with, be it a lawyer, a CPA, um, an accountant, whatever, that understands that there's the marriage between the qualitative and the quantitative and can appreciate it. And can also appreciate practicing within their field, you know, but clearly, you know, I'm I'm sure that Emily knows that the legal side is very important, but she's not, uh, doesn't have, you know, formal training in it. So I'm curious how how you guys met and then, um, you know, how you came together to write the book. You, You gave a little bit about it, Paul. Well, um, we met at a very, very special uh, unconference. It was really called the unconference called the Rendezvous in Denver, Colorado back in 2011. And I was about two-thirds of the way through this book when I met Emily and found out she was so passionate about blended families, and I knew that the book did not, while it addressed the soft side, what I'll call the soft side of estate planning, um, it did not do so to my satisfaction. And when I found Emily, I basically, the light bulb went on and said, this person needs to be a co-author and put that voice into the book. And she basically went back and, you know, rewrote chapters to add that voice, and I'll have to tell you, it made the book far better than any book I could have written by myself. Well, what a commitment and a stand you are to that, um, you know, soft side or qualitative side being important. Emily, what what was, you know, you've talked on the show of some of your background as in, in multiple ways in blended families. What brought you to wanting to write this book? Oh, yeah, it's the, the whole thing was so fabulous how it all came together. I About a year before I met Paul, I uh, had been um, referred uh, to some new clients. They ended up hiring me through a private bank, and they had gone two years without signing their estate planning documents, and their advisors were stymied. They, you know, they'd done everything that they could, and they, the couple seemed happy with the work, but they wouldn't sign, and so they referred them to me, and to our company because they knew about the work that we do. And uh, they were in a blended family situation. He had two children from a prior marriage. They had two children together. And they were completely stuck in terms of a clash of uh, conflict of interest in terms of how to move forward with their planning. And uh, we used the the money coaching, the money types that, that we have talked about on the show. And we also looked at their family dynamics and their histories using the genogram and they got a tremendous amount of value in the course of just four months and were able to come up with a strategy to their estate plan that was quite unique, very special. They became much closer as a couple, were really happy and they even they went back to the private bank. They brought more of their assets under management there because they were so thrilled with how their advisors had worked with us and that we had worked together. And they even referred um, one of her family members to that bank as well. So it was this wonderful uh, situation where everybody benefited so greatly from the coaching that 
I made a declaration at that time. I said, there needs to be a book written about this. This story needs to be heard, and people need to understand about the complexities of blended family estate planning so that they're given the resources that they need and the tools they need to be able to effectively navigate those conversations and not get stymied and stuck because that's just it's a nightmare for everybody when that happens. And then I met Paul, and it was, you know, I love how you describe the conference. It was through the Purposeful Planning Institute, John A. Warnick's amazing organization that we're all a part of. And um, we were listening to a keynote. It was all about collaboration. Completely about collaboration and how to work together with uh, the qualitative and the quantitative. And Paul and I are sitting next to each other at a table, and he says he's writing this book, and I just beamed at him, and I thought, well, that's a book I wanted to write. And we had a great conversation and found out that here we met in Denver, and we're both in Northern California at the time. He was um, in, in Napa, and I was in Marin. And we just flowed so effortlessly. And Paul and I like to joke about this kind of point-counterpoint way of talking where he would give me the lawyer estate planning uh, you know, the, the structures and the, the language and all the jargon that needed to be addressed. And uh, then I would look at it and I would say, well, if we go that way, then we're making an enemy and we're, we're treating somebody in an antagonistic way when they're actually married and in love with each other. How do we blend those two? And we really had a great time going back and forth and honoring each other's perspectives. And it was this both and mentality. And uh, I don't know if you remember this, Paul, but our editor was really delighted as she was reading it because she said she's worked with a lot of co-authors and she couldn't get over how well we blended our voices and the work. And we thought we laughed because it seemed like that was the theme of the book, was blending. So it was great to know that we had achieved that. Well, and I love that you guys are opening up this conversation. I want to make sure our listeners know that they're open to join in the conversation with us as well. You can call directly or fax questions to area code 347-215-6138 or send your email questions to listeners with an S in the end at sylviaglobal.com. We would love to have you join in the conversation. So it sounds like the book was much better with the two heads and the heart and the, um, the head brought in together. Absolutely, without a doubt. And from both of your different, you know, estate planning backgrounds and practices, what are some of the different scenarios that keep coming up? Emily, you just gave us the great example of the yours, mine, and ours. What are some of the other really key um, scenarios? Well, in the book, we lay out six different uh, categories of blended families, and that's not that list was not intended to be an exhaustive list because there may well be others, but uh, they range from what I call the empty nesters, people who get together uh, later in life and they each have children from prior relationships. You have what everybody refers to as the Brady Bunch uh, from television lore, where the uh, each spouse brings separate minor children into a relationship, and uh, you know from the unconventional, uh, which is today becoming far more conventional, the untraditional uh, blended family with same-sex partners. Uh, you, you have uh, uh, what I call eat, drink, and remarry. Uh, you have that category of people who are, have been through serial relationships and may have uh, children from more than one relationship. Uh, and uh, Emily, uh, what other types did we uh, outline? Well, I love I love how you called it. I, you had like different dates. Like it was like the the May December relationship where you know somebody is significantly older than the other one. Typically, um, it would be a, a man who's much older than the woman that he ends up with, and you know it's like starting another family when he's got grandkids that are older than his new kids, or where she's coming to the marriage with a very younger, much younger children, and so that that's another concern is when there's a huge disparity in age. 
So those, I think those are the main ones. That's great memory, Paul. <laughs> what we did was we gave those scenarios at the beginning to let people know, wow, look, this is a broad definition, broad scope. And then at the end of the book, after all of the different uh, details of estate planning are covered in a way that makes it so anybody can understand it, we then go into depth about um, scenarios with each of those as if they'd come to sit in front of their lawyer and say, okay, this is our situation. How do we best address it? So we give examples of that. And one of our goals with the book was to make it so that all of the jargon and all of the um, the specific details that need to get addressed were taken, broken down into little bite-sized chunks. Because, you know, Jamie, you and I talk a lot about small steps leading to, um, you know, accomplishing your goals and breaking things down into very small, doable steps. And so each chapter has, like, action steps at the end, breaking it down, and then really about how do you communicate about these things effectively. But I have to say, I think is one of the highlights of the book, because again, you know, you've talked about people, and we we have this situation with clients all the time, with advisors who come in and say, like you said, Emily, my clients just aren't completing the work, and I get the sense that there's, you know, some emotional piece that I don't necessarily know how to address, but it's keeping them from being able to do the work that they hired me from for, which is so frustrating. So we know that there's already a piece of something going on. And then you think about diving into a book that really has you looking at it head on. And I just think that um, breaking things down, even aesthetically, the way it looks, you know, you have all these, these blocks with really clear definitions about the legal terms. So people don't get caught and stuck in jargon and feel intimidated that their lawyer is saying something, but they don't want to be exposed for not understanding. Um, And there are great action steps about, you know, just like Kaizen, taking small steps towards your goal. So it's a really um, palatable book. You know, it's very, it's very easy to digest, which I think is is a great compliment. Well, I give the credit for that to Emily because from my standpoint, I would have never included action steps in the book, but the action steps are what is probably one of the most important parts of this book because, again, my background and training is in the head side of estate planning, the the quantitative side, and the marriage of the head and the heart is just absolutely vital to success in estate planning of any sort Uh, because even in nuclear families, I mean, there there are some really, really naughty issues that quite often a lawyer or a estate planner is just simply not equipped to deal with. That's great, Paul. Let's dive into, um, you know, with our head, we'll we'll have you be the head expert and Emily the heart expert. Um, Can you each answer what are some of the key components that get in the way of people um, devising and completing their estate plans so that families, you know, are left in a really good state? Emily? Well, one of the things that we we address right off the get-go that is applicable to anybody, any listener in any kind of family, we we go into 11 fears that people have to um, look at in terms of what might be... Yeah, and that's not exhaustive either. (laughs) I'd say they're the most common ones and the ones that keep people from moving forward because fear, and I like the acronym of it, false evidence appearing real, uh, often will keep us from taking action as opposed to catalyzing us into action. And so, you know, people have to face their fear of mortality and their um, fear of, uh, you know, what it is, the unknown. Uh, a lot of people get stuck by, you know, what if I make a wrong decision? Um, what if I want to change my mind? And, you know, it's really important for listeners to understand that estate planning is a process. It's an ongoing process, and it needs to get reviewed as life changes. And it's not like it's chiseled in stone and uh, all of it will never be able to be changed the moment you sign it. Uh, Certainly there are some structures that once you put them in place, 
are very difficult to uh, modify. But that doesn't mean that you can't make sure that your wishes shift and change and also get addressed later on as the family composition changes, as people show up as competent or incompetent, that sort of thing. There's still lots that can happen. Um, so we we are really strong proponents of clearing away whatever fear might keep somebody from completing or even starting their estate planning. Paul, do you want to speak to that? Because you encountered that a Wait, lot. Wait, I'm just going to jump in before Paul... Paul, uh, excuse me, Paul, but I want to, you said something so much so important, Emily, so I want to slow it down a little bit. And I love the acronym uh, for fear, taking each of the letters, that false evidence appearing real. Um, And so often we move as if our fear, our, um, what we're worried about is actually true. And it keeps us like, uh, gerbils on a or hamsters on a wheel just running in circles as opposed to moving forward even to writing those fears down and then looking okay is that true how can I go about starting to get some answers so again breaking down into component pieces um, what can happen with you know how you can manage those fears so I think that's so important from an emotional component Um, okay Paul go well, I I just believe that uh, the fears cause what I call planning paralysis. And what I mean by that is people simply get stuck and they don't do anything. And quite often the cost of not of no action is a greater harm to someone's estate plan than if they took at least some action that they felt was right at the time. And you run into this all of the time in estate plan. And I'll add, especially in blended family situations, because oftentimes decision makers can find themselves in a place where there's a, they're in a no-win position, where no matter what decision they make, they believe that somebody's going to be unhappy. And so oftentimes that fear of, you know, dealing, not wanting to deal with the unhappiness of one person over another will keep somebody from taking any action and kind of letting the chips fall where they may, which is also taking an action. And we go into that right at the very beginning about what the cost is if you don't have an estate plan. So what are some of the costs? You, you're already starting to dive into it, but, you know, what what is the potential of just being the deer in the headlights and saying, let, you know, the chips fall? Well, there there is an estate plan for every person out there, and it's called the laws of intestacy. And those those laws basically assume what some legislative body who doesn't know you uh, assumes you would want to see happen with your estate plan. And this is particularly harsh to unmarried partners because most intestacy laws favor re- legal relationship uh, people. And this is an area where when I talk to someone who's in a committed partnership but they're not married, and they don't have their estate planning documents done, I said, this is a very high priority on your list because this is, I explained to them what can happen if they don't. And the other side of that as well is um, it's not, some people think that it's all about um, when they die, when they pass away. And a major part of estate planning is also about what happens in the life of, your loved ones, and your life if you become incapacitated. And again, if you're not married and you don't have your specific legal uh, desires uh, clearly stated, you know, in terms of who should be your power of attorney, make your your important decisions, pay your bills, have access to your money and your accounts, Um, if you don't have clearly stated who can make medical decisions for you and you're not married, Unfortunately, because of secrecy laws related to our health, unmarried spouses 
might, I mean, partners, but, you know, literally your committed partnership might not even be allowed to be in the room when you're, um, let's say, in a coma or wouldn't be allowed to be involved in any medical decisions on your behalf, um, even when they might know your interests at heart. And this, again, isn't just for blended families. It's for anybody. So these are the things that, you know, most of us lay people just really don't know, and it's easy enough to... uh sort of be in um, paralysis when you think there aren't consequences, but really knowing, um, and and that's really on the, those are on the real quantitative side. Um, What I see also on the qualitative side, and I'm curious what both of your experiences are, is that um, a vacuum gets created when there's no information. So people just make up their own story about, you know, well, why did our parents just leave it like this or why was this person left more or you know and you can't if those people are dead you can't go back ever you there's no recourse of going back and saying mom dad what were you thinking what was um the reasoning behind this um the parents aren't there to say look we got scared we got worried that whatever we did someone would be unhappy um so other stories you know, this one was loved more than I was. All those stories come to play. Do you guys see that in your work? Oh, absolutely. I, yeah. Yeah. Can I jump in here, sure. Paul? I want to go back to the example that I gave earlier where the um, the husband had two children from a prior marriage and then he had um, two children with his current wife and she only had those two. And they did this four months of work with me and they came up with a strategy that they felt really great about and I would try to interject a couple of different other possibilities of some planning that they could do during their lifetime. Um, and they didn't really, they didn't hear that. They were really focused on what would happen at the second to die, like if she died first or if he died first. That was their focus. It was all about death. And so it was huge to get that piece done. So I, I certainly wasn't putting forth an agenda. I just wanted to make sure they understood that that was a possibility, that there's lots of estate planning that can happen and transfers of um, your wealth, your assets, um, through gift giving, through other means um, during your lifetime. And what we did was we had a, a meeting. They wanted to share their planning with their all four of their adult children um, as a result of my coaching and letting them know how valuable it is for them to express to them directly during their lives how they came up with this, especially because it was very complex. And they were really proud of what they'd done. And so we had this, this meeting with the parents and then the two children from the prior marriage, the two children that they had together, and they shared it. And the kids were great. I had looked at each of them and given them some coaching and there were like two generations. The older ones were um, late 40s, early 50s, and the younger ones were um, mid-20s. And when they finished sharing their estate planning um, idea with them and how they were going to go forward, they were really grateful to have the information, and the older ones said, wow, this is so valuable. We are not going to count on a dime because we want our stepmother to live a long and healthy life. And we, we see that given what you've we're not going to be um, necessarily um, seeing any of the benefits of this until much later in our lives. So we need to plan for our retirement and our kids' college education in a really important way, very useful for us. And the younger ones were in a position where they had to own it. Can I just cut in for one second? Sure. You could see how resentment could really build up if they had been counting on money earlier with the first to die and then that hadn't happened. They hadn't had the conversation, and the younger generation hadn't made appropriate plans. You could see where that could be a real um, problematic situation. Right, oh. and it was really great. Oh, I'm sorry, Paul. I say it, it can get problematic in a hurry too, because Absolutely. people conjure up. And Jamie, your point to your point, it's really a, an important one, and I want to underscore it. Uh, people conjure up what I refer to as the parade of horribles. And if they are not given the information that they should, that they feel they should have been given, they come up with their own answers, and they're usually the worst. They absolutely yep. envision the worst. I had a, I've had, it's not just one, I've had several 
grown men break down in my office and cry because they believe that since their parents left them less of an inheritance, that their parents loved them less than their siblings. And these were people whose net worths far exceeded their parents. And had their parents simply, and this is what, these were all in nuclear families, had their parents simply sat down with them, or even in the the estate planning documents explained why they were doing what they were doing and that it did not affect their love for their child, it would have saved a lifetime of heartache about that. Plus, uh, you have to remember that these people are survivors and it impacts the relationship between the siblings where one sibling is jealous of the other, uh, it can create a real frosty relationship in a hurry. Oh, oh this is, I think that's so important. And there's, like we said, there's no recourse. You know, you can explain that in a rational way to your client, but that lingering fear of did my parents love my siblings more, it, it's hard to eradicate that. Right. So I'm going to jump in because we have a listener question. And this great. is a great one for you, for you, Paul. A listener wants to know, uh, I have often heard the importance of estate planning stressed for families as soon as there is a child. But it seems that there is little reason for couples that are legally married with no children unless there are a lot of assets that you want to distribute among family members. Is there really a reason for the average young couple that is legally married without kids to formally set plans? And if so, what should the focus be in such a case? Well, that's a great question. And the first thing they should focus on is planning for incapacity. Incapacity is far more likely than it is for at for death for young people. And if you want proof of that, just simply price the cost of life insurance at a young age versus disability insurance. The disability insurance premiums will always be far higher because there is a far greater likelihood that you will become incapacitated and have to draw on those disability benefits. So that's the first thing that I tell people it's very important to take care of. It might also be critical for them to have wills that basically mirror image wills that basically leave everything to each other because there may be some some tax reasons why you would want to have a will. You may want... Uh, the marital deduction, and and depending upon your particular jurisdiction's laws, uh, if you have an estate tax, you might not get that if you die without a will. So this is a uh, it's a great question, and there are lots of things for un for both unmarried partners without children as well as married partners without children to address in their estate planning. And I'd like to add to that. Um, Estate planning also involves um, things like your your medical desires and your end-of-life, you know, what it is that you want to have happen. And uh, having a conversation with your spouse, being really clear on what each of you want, and writing that out and having that legally can make such a difference, especially when a spouse finds himself at odds with the parents of that partner. And everybody knows about the Terry Schiavo case, what a nightmare that was for those loved ones who all loved her. There were very different views and values about what should happen there. And the more a single, you know, couple without any kids that's legally married, this, this specifically stipulates what they want to happen, have happen in the event of certain circumstances can really take care of a you know a lot of legal nightmares that could happen. And the other thing that I would say is um, there, there may be some possessions, some valuables 
that are heirlooms that you may want to make sure stay within your family system. And that's another place where you want to, you know, make sure that that is in writing and specified and that your partner or your spouse knows that. And uh, the last thing that maybe, Paul, you could speak to a little bit more is um, when couples are married and they they don't have a will, they don't have a plan, um, are there other things that could be impacted for them um, and and their love? Oh, I know what it is. You may have beneficiaries designated on your 401K, on your life insurance, on other things that you had before you got married, um, bank accounts, ownership of property, and that's another piece of estate planning is you want to make sure all of that is updated as well because uh, you're, even if you have a will, if you haven't changed those things, those will trump the will. Isn't that right, Paul? That's correct. And quite often, surviving spouses determine to their horror that their their deceased spouse never changed beneficiary designations on life insurance, and they may have named siblings or even their parents. And this can create some real difficulty uh, for the surviving spouse. And any listener that's in a blended family can know what it would be like if you didn't change the beneficiaries and a former spouse was the beneficiary. And that has happened. In fact, I mean, I, I met somebody um, while waiting for a rental shuttle, and when she found out about what I did, she told me this unbelievable and yet very common story about how her husband, his second marriage to her, had taken care of everything in the will, but had never changed his beneficiaries, and she had been embroiled in battles for years because of it, and it was just a nightmare and tore everybody apart. It was heart-wrenching. Well, yep. talk about it heating up fast and emotional, you know. That's a, a perfect scenario, you know, and, and you can't change it from your grave, unfortunately. Um, so, and, you know, I was talking to a client today where um, her her second husband, actually, her first husband um, died, and then when she was 45 and she remarried, and then her second husband was diagnosed with, I forget what, and died nine days later. So thank goodness, um, and he had kids from a from a prior marriage, and she had kids from a prior marriage. They had no kids together, and he had a great deal of wealth. So thank goodness he had already, they had already done their estate planning together because sometimes you just don't, you know, accidents happen, people can die in a day, or illnesses get diagnosed, and you can die in nine days, which you know, certainly doesn't leave you time to put these complex documents together. That's okay. right. Oh, did you want to uh, respond to that, Paul? Because we have another listener question. No, let's take the question. You're going to love this one, Paul, because it, it actually um, addresses two of your expertise, the blended family situation and business valuation. So uh, it says you were talking about loved ones feeling unequally valued based on what is left. When there is a family business and more than one house, family residence and rental properties involved, is it really practical to leave each child an equal share of ownership in all properties involved, or does such an effort to create equality in assets leave the children with more complicated legal issues? What is the best way to address these things? Well, uh, that's a very, very good question, and typically, what I would tell people is that fair is not always equal, and equal is not always fair. And to that end, when you have when you have situations where, let's say, a child is working in the business and other children are not, uh, some of the worst situations I have ever seen have involved families where one of the siblings is working in the business and feels like now he or she is working for his siblings who are quibbling about what he does in the business and and uh, how much salary is being taken out and all of these issues when it could have been simply done to have made it possible for with a plan 
to have the child who works in the business basically get the business, whether they inherit it or whether they have to buy it and finance it with life insurance that can be used uh, to buy out the estate. And there are just a whole lot of issues that crop up in this. Uh, Emily and I discuss a lot of this in presentations that we make. Yeah, and the other scenario with blended families, so that's applicable to any family with a family business. And when you're dealing with blended families and you've got a, um, let's say, a child from a former marriage in the business, and then you have a stepmother who is going to be needing to live off of the income from that business, imagine how complicated that can be, and especially when she feels like she wants to have a say in the business. And perhaps she's been involved in the business, but she and her stepson not necessarily get along. Or if there's a younger child from her marriage with the husband and we, there's no idea whether that child's going to be interested in being in the business or not, how do you set up your estate plan so that that possibility might be there um, while also taking care of the concerns of the, the, the son that is in the business or the daughter that's in the business? Well, that's, there's a lot, there's an, an awful lot to this. Um, the situation can snowball, particularly after the death of the parent, because quite often the parent is the glue that holds these two really sometimes competing sides together. And once that glue is gone, uh, it is not unusual for relationships to go south and sour. And uh, quite often these things end up in court. And that's the last place that a wealthy person wants to be because if, if for example, there is a jury trial or even a judge trial, uh, the wealthy person may not feel that they have a peer Uh, in the courthouse, that the court may be upset that they have to deal with this dispute and may try to figure out some way to make every side lose. And I've seen that happen more than once. Wow. So when we think about some of the best ways to deal with this, you know, one of the reasons why we're so passionate about bringing the heart to the estate planning process is it has a lot to do about having the conversation and not thinking that you need to figure it all out within your closed doors, just you, and really listening and finding out the different perspectives of the people that are going to be impacted by the decision-making and having the capacity to listen, to uh, communicate and hear the concerns and let people know that, you know, ultimately the decision-making rests on your shoulders and that you are going to take everybody's uh, concerns to heart. And the most important thing is when you come up with your plan is to then go back and communicate that plan to everybody from a place of given everybody's concerns, given all the different scenarios that we could come up with, these are the ones that seem to make the most sense. And before we sign on the dotted line, we wanted to hear what your impressions are. And, you know, to go back to that situation with that other, the blended family I was talking about, uh, the young, the older kids had benefited from um, having their schooling paid for, so the younger kids. They also got the benefit of having uh, more time with their father, possibly, than the younger kids would. Like, there were intangible things that, as well, that they could look at that, that, um, the fair versus equal that you were talking about, Paul. And as a result of that conversation, the parents really rethought their estate plan and began to look at how they could uh, make sure that all of their grandchildren uh, also benefited from the estate, perhaps even during their lifetime, around uh, paying for their college. Because that was a value that they had as an important value in the family in terms of education. And they wanted to make sure that that got addressed. And the parents had not had that on their radar, even when I attempted to put it on there, until the kids brought it forward, um, not from a place of, well, how come you didn't do this, but more from a place of, wow, this is really vital and valuable for us to know in terms of our planning. And it opened that possibility up for them. So that that would be the recommendation we would have, um, is do whatever you can to build your skills to communicate with your family members around 
possibilities and scenarios and concerns. Well, and I love that because it's so resonant with our show in general. You know, I'm thinking how um, communication um, is such a theme throughout our show and with different um, people that we've interviewed. That was the core of what Deborah Price talked about in Couples and Money. Um, it was a huge piece of what we talked about with Keith Whitaker and Susan Masenzio around um, receiving a gift. And this certainly, and, and I'm also just so struck by how resonant your advice is that it's exactly what they said. It's about, you know, um, putting, making sure that people know that ultimately you're the decision makers, but that you're willing to listen, making that, you know, listening to what they say, devising your plan, then coming back, sharing the plan, giving a second opportunity to listen based on um, how th the plan resonated with the family, and then taking a third pass through. And all the while, I would add, being able to vet both, you know, and process both the quantitative pieces that are coming up, any questions, but also any of those qualitative issues, particularly fear, that get in the in the way um, and become roadblocks as, as opposed to getting the plan um, signed and completed, which is not really ever happened. It doesn't get completed, but that segment of it. Uh, Jamie, I'm going to jump in because we're we're getting oh, nearing to need to wrap up, and we have another question that's quite complex, and I wanted to see what Paul had to say about it. Is, can we jump in and do this one really quickly? Absolutely. And if we're not able to answer it now, we will definitely post it on the Sylvia Global web, uh, Facebook page and the uh, Wealth Psychology, uh, Wealth Legacy Group Facebook page, too. Uh, in a blended family with birth children, adopted children which are not legally adopted in the United States but are legally adopted in another country and currently reside there in that country, and others are legally adopted in both places, U.S. and that country, and live in the U.S., Close, close by. What is the best way to include the children in the other countries in estate planning, and what suggestion would you make for such situations? Hmm. That's a that's a good question. It's a hard I question. Um, I know. Well, um, I mean, it, some of it's going to depend. I mean, this is an international estate planning question. And some of it's going to depend upon the local laws of each country and, uh, you know, if there are tax issues, uh, any estate tax treaty that may exist between the two countries. And the United States, for example, does not have a, uh, a treat, an estate, estate tax treaty with every country in the world. So uh, this is, uh, you know, very, very can be a very, very difficult uh, area to deal with. And it's actually one of the ways where you can use the complexities of a particular family scenario like this one to bring the family closer together. So we don't know the ages of these children, but let's say that they are um, all adults and they're living in different places in the world, and they have different legal status depending on their adoptive um, nature of the relationships. Um, there's ways to engage all of those children. And I, it's so funny that we don't have a word to describe somebody who's an adult that's also a person's child. because um, They are adults, and they could uh, do research about what are their country's laws, and what are the treaties? And what are the different possibilities and scenarios? And what have other people in similar situations done? And coming back and then reporting back to the whole family as a result of that. And in terms of engaging all the family members when people are living in uh, different countries around the world, which is happening more and more, Jamie can speak to that. She's in Israel and her parents are in California. And your brother's in the East Coast, right, Jamie? My brother's in the East Coast, yeah. Yeah. So certain ways I am, are, you know, am or am not able to participate in, you know, being um, a um, signee on documents. Um, and also there's no, there's no estate tax here. There's no inheritance tax. So it's very different. So 
I think really knowing, like you said, Emily, some of the particular facts in your, you know, whatever that country is, um, is the is one of the first steps. Um, and I think what and happens, then, you know, go ahead. That, that, that planning paralysis can happen when somebody feels overwhelmed by all that they have to encounter and, and research and when they feel like they have to do it themselves. And this is where engaging all the family members in it and saying it's time to have a dialogue about this. A lot of people have a fear about opening up this conversation because they don't want to set up false expectations. They don't want to have people coming from a place of being entitled. But what they don't realize is that, you know, knowledge is, is empowering. And being grounded from a place of, oh, what can I expect? What can I know um, going forward makes it so somebody can really make good, clear decisions in their lives. Um, Great. We've got got only about five minutes left, so I want to make sure that we're able to give our, you know, evocative question, inspiration, um, inspiring invitation, and useful tools. And I want to make sure that we have an opportunity to thank both of you, particularly Paul as our guest, um, for coming on and talking about this really important subject. Well, thank you for Emily, having me. Emily, do you me. want to start with the evocative question? Or questions? Oh, sure. In this, in this yeah, respect? We, we couldn't limit it to just one because there's so many. But after listening to this, we certainly want to ask you, you know, are your plans, whatever you have done, are they up to date and in writing? What you want to have happen at the time of your death, what you want to have happen if for you know, heaven forbid you should be incapacitated. Um, When was the last time you updated your will? Do you even have a will? Do you have a designated power of attorney, uh, a medical directive? Uh, These are things that really take a look and see what you have. Have you updated your beneficiaries? These little specific details, like it's a way to evoke uh, what little action can you take? So that would be our inspiring invitation as well, is to put on your calendar a committed date and time when you'll take a small step towards making your wishes known in a clear legal way. So after I wrote that, I then step. got up. What? A small step, because, you know, I, I have the feeling from your evocative question of even getting overwhelmed. So remember, it's a small <laughs> step, one of these things. Yes. You know, what's the one piece of everything you've heard that would be a valuable place to start? And for many people, we recommend it would be your medical wishes. You know, heaven forbid something happen to you tomorrow, what is it that you, uh, you know, would would want to have happen so that your loved ones could really make sure that your wishes are taken into account? And I, I want to say that when I wrote this, I then put on my calendar when I was going to update my my will. Um, so I just moved and I just had some changes and it's time to, okay, time to update. And then in terms of useful tools, we wanted to make sure everybody knew that the book Estate Planning for the Blended Family uh, by L. Paul Hood Jr. and Emily Bouchard is a, a great resource. It has a CD in the back with all kinds of checklists and great materials. It's easy to read and um, people find it really valuable, whether they're in a blended family or not. It helps you feel really empowered when you're in front of your estate planning advisors. Um, And then if you're not sure about what would happen in your state, if you're in the United States, and you don't know what would happen if you die without a will tomorrow, you can go to a website, which is mystatewill.com, and you can find out what the... um, pesticide laws are there. And then there's also a free download about money types and communication around these issues at um, uh, blended-families.com that you can get as well. So, wow, Paul, thank you so much for being here. This was really a great, vibrant conversation, and our listeners obviously are engaged and wanting to know more. So we hope we can have you back. I'd be happy to come back. Thanks so much, Paul. Thank you, listeners. Have a great day. And, Jamie, have a great evening in Israel. (laughs) I just put on my calendar to update my will because of being sick and to make sure that, you know, everything's in place. Uh, I think it's in place, but it it reminded me to go and check it out. So thank you. Or being well, but, uh, you know, going This program has been made possible by Weatherby Asset Management. The views and opinions expressed are those of the guests. Weatherby Asset Management is dedicated to providing exceptional wealth management services by forming partnerships built on trust, 
understanding, and thoughtful advice. For more than 20 years, they've been offering objective perspective, personalized planning, and sophisticated investment management to individual investors and families, as well as pension plans, foundations, and endowments. Contact them at www.weatherby.com. Weatherby Asset Management, located in San Francisco and New York City.